G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with guests who have spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. Also, if you've liked this show so far, don't forget to tell a friend and spread the word. My name is Matt Testoni, and joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Simon Brannigan, and he's a marine restoration practitioner and works at the Nature Conservancy. And we're going to be talking all about shellfish and shellfish reefs. Simon's been working really hard to restore these critically endangered habitats. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Excellent to be on. So tell us, first off, what is a shellfish reef? If you audience can picture a, a coral reef, you've got a, a three-dimensional structure that comes up from the seabed. They obviously they can come in different forms, but rather than coral being the dominant feature of that reef, you have oysters and mussels, and you have a bunch of other flora and fauna species on there as well. But yeah, an oyster or, or a mussel reef or a shellfish reef is a reef that is dominated by a, a shellfish um, species, a three-dimensional um, uh, habitat that comes up from, from the seafloor. Cool. I really like that kind of way of describing it. I've never thought of it like you kind of picture a coral reef, but instead of all the like colourful corals, you've just got mountains of these different shellfish. Yeah, I... I guess I've been working in this field for a while and I would argue that a, a, a shellfish reef is, is just as beautiful as a coral reef. Uh, as we know, the, the temperate seascapes down here is, is wonderful for diving and certainly do hope that the shellfish reefs that were involved in restoring in the bay become a, a, a dive um, place as well. But yeah, there's a remnant reef in Tasmania on the east coast. We've got some that the water clarity down there is usually quite good. And we've got some beautiful photos of sort of the, the Austrian Gazi, the native oyster and kelp and sort of other species that are colonising the reef, scallops, etc. So, yeah, definitely want to capture people's imaginations around shellfish reefs. Yeah, and I think it's like it's so cool because I think they are. Like there's so many habitats that are just as beautiful as like the Great Barrier Reef. But tell us, so... Especially where to, you know, your work is in Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne. And so I believe it's oysters and mussels are the main colonizers of these reefs. So tell us a bit about what an oyster and a mussel is and what the differences are. I guess I'll take a step back. There's a, there's a bunch of bivalve species, be it scallops or abalone, oysters or, 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 or mussels, but it's actually the oysters and mussels that are, that are the reef forming species. As we know, the scallops grow in great abundance together, so do abalone, but they don't, they don't cement together and grow on top of each other and create a, a reef over time. In Port Phillip Bay, up to 50% of the seafloor was once dominated by oyster reefs and mussel reefs. Uh, the traditional owners around Port Phillip Bay should just, um, sustainably harvest these reefs for thousands of years. They're of, of great of spiritual importance as well. Uh, when the Europeans first came along, there was a, an oyster rush. So these, these oysters were, were largely sort of decimated by the sort of late 1800s. So, yeah, in Port Phillip Bay is the Austrian Gazi, the, the native flat oyster, uh, which is the native species, and we have the, and the blue mussels. They're still 
are remnant populations of these bivalves in the bay, but at quite a low um, population base. Okay. And so these mussels and these oysters, they kind of disregard their shells when they die, and that kind of is what forms the reef, much like a coral reef kind of forms off other dead coral, I guess. Is that true? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. So I guess uh, you'll have a, a mature oyster um, that will sort of release larvae into the water column. That larvae could actually land back on top of the oyster that released the larvae or an or oyster nearby, a living oyster. So you can actually get sort of a bunch of living oysters sort of cemented together and still sort of living and breathing and filtering the water. But below that, you'll have a, a substrate of, of, of dead oyster shells or mussel shells. In the bay, we, we, we do think it was sort of mixed reefs, both oysters and mussels coexisting on reefs, but there would have been circumstances where you just, just had an oyster reef and just had a, a mussel reef as well. Okay, so like I was initially picturing like oysters and mussels living together on top of each other, but is that not the case or is that the case? Well, I guess the, there's not many remnant reefs to look at, unfortunately. 99% of these reefs have been lost. The remnant reef down in Tassie is, is very much sort of dominated by that, the, the Austrian Gazi, the flat oyster. So that, that's the dominant substrate. For it to be classified as an oyster reef, you need at least 50 mature oysters per square metre. And generally speaking, you'll have sort of sort of 50 to 100 per, per square metre. But I, I do think in Port Phillip Bay, there would have been plenty of circumstances where you had both the, the oysters and mussels sort of living together. Potentially, they, they have different settlement cues that they complement one another. We've certainly found on our reefs um, where there are oysters and mussels, they are sort of coexisting quite, quite happily, not very sort of biological word there but yeah you know you, you dive down there and they, they certainly seem to be at home in, in that that new ecosystem that we've created yeah so tell us like so most people will know what an oyster or a mussel is but tell us a little bit more about what they are and what they do and that'll kind of lead us on to why they're so important so yeah i guess both species are a, a type of bivalve they're they're incredibly efficient at filtering the water so I guess part of the, basically, they'll be down on the reef, they'll be open, you can see them feeding. So they're, they're filtering the water column, they're improving the, the local water clarity. And same as human, humans, we, we, we eat stuff and then we have waste and they basically release these little packets of, of fish food. So that's why fish are so attracted to these shellfish reefs, these biodeposits that will either sort of land down in the sediment or sort of float away. And, and that's what sort of provides the, the food for the number of different fish species that will colonise these reefs. Most people, when they think of oysters or mussels, they'll think of them on, on, the, on our dinner plate and don't sort of think beyond what the ecosystem role may be. You know, the, the reefs that we're building it is very much for biodiversity, and improving the health of Port Flop Bay and the other estuaries that we work in. So, yeah, bivalve species similar to the, the abalone and scallops, but the, these are reef forming, which is a little bit different to those ones. But, yeah, incredibly efficient at, at filtering the water and, and creating um, habitat for other species and a food source for other species. Yeah, I always, like when people, because people do, you know, you mention oysters or mussels, like, oh, yum, and they're always talking about how to eat them. 
And after I did a bit of research, like a few years ago on them, I was really like, I don't know if I want to eat an animal that filters all of the dirt and muck that comes out of some of our rivers as like, you know, and that's its whole job is just filters out a lot of animal waste and a lot of animal feces and grows. And it's kind of gross when you think about it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. The filter feed is, I guess, to put people at ease in terms of what they, they buy at the seafood wholesale or elsewhere, Uh, particularly in Port Phillip Bay with the, with the, the muscle growing by the aquaculture farmers. It is closely regulated by the EPA and others so they can rest assured that the the, the mussels or the oysters that they buy in the supermarket are, are fresh and, and healthy to eat um, however when you do have um, oysters and mussels in the wild that are that are growing maybe in the yarra or, or close to sort of outlet of outfalls you, you want to leave those those ones alone yeah and so i think what is it they can filter a bathtub of water per oyster per day is that right yeah, so, yeah, they're, in, they're incredibly efficient at, at filtering of water. So if you can imagine thousands, if not millions, of these oysters providing that ecosystem service every day, it's quite it's quite incredible. If you built enough reefs in the right locations, it could sort of basically filter the, the amount of water that, that is put back into the, the port for the bay system, you know, on, on a regular basis. Yeah, and, I mean, if anyone hasn't seen this kind of the project that we're about to talk about. Just first off there, Port Phillip Bay is a huge area, way bigger than Melbourne is. And it used to be covered in these shellfish reefs. And then they're pretty, as you said, 99% gone. You go, wow, I wonder what that's done to the water quality and the fish population. It must be, must've been an entirely different place. Yeah, we're, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we're in a fortunate position where you have Port Phillip Bay, which is 2,000 square kilometres. It's, it's fringed by pretty heavy development on, on most sections, but it is relatively healthy. We're, we're lucky. We can go diving. We can go swimming in Port Phillip Bay. There's certainly spikes during summer where you'll have algal blooms, maybe during heavy rainfall events as well, but it's a pretty healthy functioning bay, but it, it could be even healthier you could have even more fish, which is which is really exciting. So, yeah, you look at some of the old photos back in the day and, you know, the, the Port Phillip Bay was full of sort of sharks and, and other species. And you'd imagine it would have been quite a, quite a different place. But saying that, we are quite fortunate that having you know, this estuarine system fringed by urban development, that it's in pretty good nick already, but we're sort of working to improve it with others. Yeah, and so part of that work is shellfish reefs. Tell us about what you're actually doing. And so you work for the Nature Conservancy and what the what the projects entail, because that is super interesting. Yeah, so the Nature Conservancy has been involved in uh, shellfish reef restoration in Australia since 2015. So we obviously have the project in Port Phillip Bay. We now have established projects in South Australia, Western Australia, and also in Queensland, in Noosa. And next year, we're going to be embarking on the, uh, a reef builder initiative. But um, yeah, in, in terms of Port Phillip Bay, uh, I guess one of the, the, the key things to, to highlight in the beginning is that we're undertaking an ecological restoration pro- process here. So this is very different to artificial reefs. We're putting an ecosystem back in the bay that used to be there. Artificial reefs are sort of those reef balls or sort of other concrete structures that are put out in Port Phillip Bay and elsewhere. So the way in which we undergo the restoration process, uh, we follow the, the standards and principles of the ecological 
um, Society of e Ecological Restoration, and it's a reconstruction method in Port Phillip Bay. So essentially we need to put back the reef substrate. And then because the current population base of oysters in the mussels in the bay are quite low, we need to go back and seed that reef. So a little bit different, say in Chesapeake Bay in the US, where there's been a lot of shellfish reef restoration, all they need to do in a lot of those areas is just put back a reef base and there's enough oysters in the system that will naturally colonise that reef. Whereas here, we sort of need to do both. In terms of the way we go about the restoration, I guess there's a, a quite a, a detailed site selection process. So we undertake restoration suitability modelling, and there's a bunch of different parameters that go into that model around bathymetry, uh, some ecological parameters around temperature that the oysters require, for example, proximity to other habitats. So, and that works twofold. So proximity to seagrass, for example, there's, there's an advantage by building a shellfish reef near seagrass, for example, because there's, there's evidence to show that you put shellfish reefs in, it, in, it improves the water clarity and quality in the area. Seagrass are flowering plants, so we can get more seagrass coming back. But also you obviously don't want to build on top of seagrass. So we put a buffer in place to make sure that happens. And that's also part of the permit conditions. Proximity to historical reefs, all the reefs we're building in Port Phillip Bay are at locations where there used to be reefs. Buffers from shipping channels, etc. cetera. Uh, 2020 is very different to the 1800s. Um, there's a lot of areas in the bay that we, we can't restore shellfish reefs now because they're a small boating zone, there's a shipping channel, it's an aquaculture zone, et cetera, et cetera. So all this information goes into that model. It's weighted with different criteria. Then you come out with a, a scoring system of areas that are highly suitable down to, down to low. Then we follow that up with sort of baseline dives. The model is only as good as the data that goes into it. And, and the mapping in Port Phillip Bay is pretty good, but some of the mapping is quite old, particularly around seagrass. So we'll go back, we'll dive that site, we'll commission further surveys if necessary to make sure we, we choose the right location. And then the next step is to sort of come up with a reef design. So we basically tailor our reef design to suit the, the conditions. So the, the way we design the reefs in Geelong are different to the reefs at St Kilda, for example. And the reason being... At St Kilda, it's, it's, it's really a dynamic environment. The, the strong currents, you have the Yarra plume, you can get waves on the beach, you know, further around sometimes. So you need a sort of a, a strong structure. So we build our reef bases out of uh, limestone rubble up to about a half a metre off the floor. In Geelong, this last construction season, we, we used a combination of recycled shell and, and limestone rubble. So a, a parallel project that we work on is called Chuck Don't Chuck Shell Recycling Project. So we recycle shells from seafood wholesalers and restaurants in Geelong and Melbourne. We cure and quarantine those shells on the Bellarine Peninsula for six months as part of the biosecurity protocols. And then we lay a bed of shell around 30 centimetres high. Then we're putting sort of two metre clumps of, of limestone on, on that shell base. And then Whilst all that's happening at the moment, we have around 3 million oysters growing in the Victorian shellfish hatchery at Queenscliff. And uh, to confuse things further, we actually settle the oyster larvae on recycled shells as well. So you need, in terms of the life cycle of oysters, the native oyster in Port Phillip Bay is, is a brooding oyster. So that all the action will happen inside the female oyster, whereas the 
Sydney Rock and Pacific Oyster, all the action happens in the water column. Won't go too far down the sex education path, but yeah, all the action happens inside the, the female oyster. And then it will release the larvae and it'll swim around the water column. And after a couple of weeks, that oyster larvae needs to land on something to grow, to, to make it to the next life stage. So we use recycled shells as that sediment substrate. And then we go back and sprinkle seeded culch, we call it, spat, oyster spat on shell on top of that reef base, I guess like sprinkling um, icing on a cake and with a contraption we call uh, a bivalve blaster, which is like a reverse uh, vacuum cleaner. And whilst all that's happening, we also have a um, aquaculture farmer growing out a long line of blue mussels, which were wild set. So this season, we're actually going to see both oysters and mussels on the reefs, whereas previous seasons we've had oyster reefs and then mussel reefs, we've had them separate, but we're going to sort of do, do both. I guess you could look at it as... It's similar to farming. If you have a monoculture, it may be more susceptible to disease, where if you have uh, a diversity of species, it's a lot more resilient. We haven't had any issues with the reefs in terms of disease or anything like that, but I kind of think the more that we can build resilience in these ecosystems, the better. Yeah, definitely. And I guess especially with like the unknown of climate change and those kind of things, the more species, the more resilient it can be. That's really cool. So one thing I was just thinking about then is... So you've seeded these reefs with a whole bunch of shells and rock. Do you expect them to grow in size both? I guess upwards is obviously yes, but outwards as well? Yeah, it's a really good question. We, we, we predict, I mean, the, the oldest reef in the bay is three years old. We, we sort of predict that it'll take sort of seven to eight years to, for that reef itself to become a self-sustaining sort of ecosystem. We do expect that, that there will be a, a little bit of subsidence with that reef base, but that'll stabilise over a year or so. So as part of our monitoring, we do go through and do multi-beam surveys of these reefs to, to monitor that, that structural integrity. But after a few years, we do expect that the reef will slowly start to accrete in height. In terms of going outwards, no, we think that the base are going to grow sort of higher rather than wider because I guess essentially that the mussel and oyster larvae need something to land on and grow. So we could go back and augment these areas by putting more recycled shell and putting a, a, a sediment substrate down there. But yeah, at this stage, but you know, it's not beyond the, the realms of possibility that, that, you know, you do get some currents and oyster will fall off that will provide a natural settlement substrate. So it's probably growing height and it may be a little bit in, in width over time. Yeah, and I guess um, given that the reef, once the reef becomes self-sustaining, and if you did place rock and stuff around the outside, it would be a lot easier to seed that reef, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I mean, one of the, the long-term goals is to rebuild the population base of oysters and mussels in the bay. So all we need to do is go out and put out substrate and these um, the oysters and mussel larvae will naturally find these reef bases. Yeah, I think nothing's going to change the fact that the, that Portfolio Bay is, is substrate limited. So you are going to continue to need to put the substrate down to have that settlement area for the oyster and mussel sort of larvae. Yeah, and I think that's because I think traditionally when you farmed oysters or you collected oysters, you could drag up the bottom of the ocean and just destroy it and leave a sandy base, wouldn't you? Yeah, so back in the 1800s, they were sailboats and they, I guess they drag sort of like chain link nets behind the sailboats and they, they pull up that substrate, be it oysters was the main target species back then. They'll bag them up, they sold them locally. There was a bunch of oyster bars that opened up in 
Melbourne, Geelong and, and elsewhere. They exported them interstate and they also bottled them and sent them overseas. And the other way in which the oysters were used, the oyster shells and live oysters were burnt in lime kilns to extract lime to use in building. So a lot of the historic buildings in, in Melbourne and a lot of the capital cities and elsewhere are on the back of, of these oyster reefs. So that, that substrate was sort of knocked over quite quickly. And then, then you have the 60s to 90s, there was the, 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 the mussel and, and scallop dredge fishery in, in Port Phillip Bay, which would have knocked over that remaining reef structure. So there's still rocky reefs in Port Phillip Bay, but the shellfish reefs are sort of different to that. You will find oysters and mussels on these rocky reefs, but they're not falling, forming that sort of consolidated sort of reef base as such. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, because I was just kind of interested that it's not like we're making an artificial, as you said, we're just kind of trying to put back the substrate that was once there. The other key part of an ecological restoration is that basically you have a target. You're looking, what are you trying to achieve? And in ecological restoration, you'll have a a reference ecosystem or or a reference model. So what I mean by that is that you'll have a, a natural system in which you are assisting the recovery of this reef and, and your target is, is that this recovery eventually ends up as a, as a natural ecosystem. That goal in, in many circumstances might be quite, quite lofty in terms of what we've lost, but that's what separates sort of ecological restoration um, from sort of um, more sort of the artificial side of things. You're putting back a natural habitat and you have a target, targets of what you're trying to achieve. In Port Phillip Bay, we don't have a reference ecosystem as such. The nine foot bank is the closest is what to we have to a functioning reef in the bay that we have found out so far. If anyone, any listeners know of a shellfish reef, please give me a call or send me an email. But rather than it being a consolidated reef base, it's it's sort of clumping oysters with ascidians and, and sort of other species. So we've developed a, a reference model. And that reference model is based on that reference ecosystem in, in Tasmania. So you have a set bench, set benchmark for the number of oysters per square metre. You have a, a benchmark around the abundance and diversity of fish species you expect to see after a period of time. You have a, some benchmarks around the colonisation of other sort of flora flora species. So, so that's why using recycled shells is really good because it's, it's, that's you know, putting a natural product back in the bay and the reason why we use limestone and shells is that they have a these materials has a, a limestone content which is um, a strong settlement cue for the oyster and mussel larvae and so you mentioned like the settlement so i read there are a few different ways oysters and mussels will sit depending on the species but how do the ones locally in melbourne and australia how do they actually attach themselves to these shellfish reefs well, yeah, listen, that's a really good question. So we deploy these reef bases using a, a barge and a long-reach excavator. We, we aim to deploy the reefs in September, October. The primary reason for that is whilst Port Phillip Bay is recruitment limited, there's not many oysters and mussels left, there still are. So we, we deploy them at that time of the year to tap in the natural recruitment. The, the recruitment sort of hotspot for the oysters in the bay is sort of November through to March. And particularly in Geelong, we have had natural recruitment. So if you think of a a limestone boulder, maybe 50 centimetres wide, we do get recruitment, particularly on the vertical surfaces, on the horizontal surfaces that can get covered in turf and algae 
essentially just the larvae lands then it turns into oyster spat and over time it matures into a, a living breathing oyster so they can when you when you dive down and have a look at them they can be flat on the rock they can be sitting vertically on the rock they can be at an angle so there's no real set orientation when we settle the oyster larvae on the shells in the in the hatchery that they, they actually prefer scallop shells over any other shells and you know they'll, they'll settle in the, in the cup of this the cup of the shell and, and similarly you just have you know you could have up to 10 little oyster spat in the beginning they just look like specks but they'll slowly fill out slowly fill out the, the older they get the more they look like an oyster over over time so i don't know if that that answers your question but there's no real, real set format it kind of varies Wow, I just uh, the thought of a baby oyster is actually sort of cute. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think they're cute, and I, I dive down, and I think they're they're beautiful. Just to open up, and then they're feeding, and certainly looking happy. Yeah, and so these reefs, like you know, oysters, are very you know kind of rough, and as you mentioned, they settle in different patterns, which creates quite a lot of surface area, which is used by a whole host of other animals. What are some of the other animals that you get and you've seen on these shellfish reefs? Uh, at Margaret's Reef in, in Hobson's Bay, which is not far from where the Spirit of Tasmania goes in at, at St Kilda. It's sort of further around towards uh, Mornington Peninsula if you're looking directionally. Last time I dived it, um, the, the visibility can, can, can vary there. And winters, as divers know and snorkelers know, the best visibility is during winter. Uh, last time we dived, we had around a, a, a thousand, a two-year-old sort of pinky snapper on that reef so we've had um, snapper colonizing the reef and it was unprecedented as well they'll they're staying on this reef sort of it appears to be year round and normally um, snapper will, will move between different habitats but i do believe once they get older they will leave the bay and migrate down towards south australia uh what else we've seen sort of seen a lot of weird whiting sort of pygmy leather jackets we've been visited by dolphins while we've been down down on the reef in in geelong so yeah, there's a, a bunch of hula fish. There's another species that we've sort of seen on the reef as well, some, some flatheads. So there's been a variety of different sort of fish species we've seen over time. So we're almost at the so we're almost at the end now. But do you have any cool facts about oysters, shellfish, or shellfish reefs for us? I have some cool facts per hectare of reef per year. And when I say a hectare of reef, I guess it's not a, a hard hectare of shellfish reef. You'll have patch reefs within that hectare. So up to 25% of the seafloor is, is covered in, in shellfish reef. So per hectare um, of reef per year, uh, they can filter 2.7 billion litres of seawater, remove 225 kilograms of nitrogen and phosphate. So really help mitigate those algal blooms that we see during summer and, and also help mitigate the nitrogen that is put back in the bay. Uh, provides new home for around 100 marine species and per hectare uh, we would use around 500 to 1,000 cubic metres of recycled shells to build these reefs shells that would otherwise end up in landfill wow cool and that like i mean those facts kind of sum up the whole the whole of the shellfish reef project in a way 
I was um, going to have just a little fact about the actual oyster itself, which I didn't know this, but while I was doing the research, they have a three-chambered heart. I always just thought they were like a, you know, kind of gelatinous blob that filtered water, but I didn't know they had a little heart in there pumping away as well. And uh, the Austrian Gazi oyster can change um, sex as well. <laughs> no, there's species that can do that, but um, that's pretty cool. So if you have a, a dominance of, of male oysters, they can sort of change to female. So that, that's a cool fact. And they're being brooders, that's, that's different to other oyster species. And that, that brooders is where they kind of grow everything inside them and release it. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess, you know, you'll have the, the male that will release the, fer- the sperm um, then you'll have the female oyster, which will capture that um, fertilization will happen and then release the larvae. Whereas with, um, say, Sydney rocks or Pacific oysters, you have the male and female oyster. They sort of release the egg and the sperm and it all, it all happens in the, in the water column. So, so the, the, it's a brooding species, which is, which is a little bit different, which makes it a little bit more cryptic growing oysters um, or shellfish reefs and growing oysters commercially. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just before we end, that is a crazy thing that they actually capture it because nearly everything else in the ocean releases and just hopes it kind of intermingles doesn't it yeah so yeah the, yeah it's pretty cool I, I, I love going down the hatchery when they collect the, the brood stock and they bring them in and that sort of they do their thing over over the period of time so could talk oysters all day <laughs> <laughs> and mussels can't forget mussels well that kind of brings us to the end But if anyone wants to learn a bit more about shellfish reefs and even oysters and mussels and so forth and the projects going on, both here and around the rest of Australia, what should they do and where should they go? So there's a couple of things you can do. You can Google natureaustralia.org.au or you could Google Reef Builder, which is part of our sort of our national initiative to restore shellfish reefs. And that's to bring a critical ecosystem back from the brink of extinction. And we also have a number of volunteer opportunities. Um, we certainly do um, welcome folk that are keen to, to volunteer and participate, be it in shell recycling or, or helping to monitor the reefs uh, on, the, on the land. So there's a land component for the, for the monitoring. Wow, cool. And do you even have a scuba diving component as well, or is that only for the special volunteers? We need to be, for the Nature Conservancy, we're all sort of scientific divers. So we basically... We are, um, I guess, commercially trained to, to dive the reefs, but certainly been, there's another project we have run with the Victorian National Parks Association called Oyster Watch, which is deploying sediment plates throughout the bay to gather data around recruitment hotspots. But yeah, really interested in talking to sort of dive clubs and others around you know, maybe replicating what um, VMPA do with the Great Victorian Fish Count. Uh, we could actually have divers go down and do sort of periodic sort of fish counts on the reef. It's not happening yet, but sort of open to that. But in terms of the, the data we collect that goes into our monitoring evaluation reporting, that's by Nature Conservancy divers. But moving forward, I certainly see a role in recreational divers in being stewards and, and monitoring the reefs as well. Yeah, could end up with the great Australian oyster and mussel count. <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, I'll put any contact details and stuff if anyone does want to volunteer in the notes of the podcast. But that kind of brings us to the end. So thank you again for being on the show. Pleasure, Matt. Thanks for asking me for coming on. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. 
You can see my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography or my website www.mtunderwatermedia.com. Production assistance by George McGrath and music by the talented Dan Musil and his awesome slide guitar. If you've liked the show, jump onto our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Podcast. Coming up next time on the podcast, we've got Warren from Octonation. And if you know what Octonation is, you can probably guess the podcast is all about octopus. This has been the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out.